Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, we'll be exploring what is arguably the quintessential screwball comedy, My Man Godfrey, from Universal Pictures in 1936. It was directed by Gregory LaCava and stars William Powell, Carol Lombard, Gail Patrick, Misha Auer, Alice Brady, and Eugene Pallet. Set in New York in the midst of the Depression, I Man Godfrey tells the story of its eponymous character, Godfrey Smith Park, and the wealthy but dizzy Bullock family. One evening, Cornelia and Irene Bullock stumble upon Godfrey at a city dump, where he's taken refuge among a growing population of forgotten men. Cornelia offers Godfrey $5 to accompany her to the Waldorf Ritz. He's needed as an item in a scavenger hunt. Godfrey refuses, but after a bit of cajoling from Irene, he accepts. Later, Irene offers Godfrey a job as the family's butler. Irene falls madly in love with Godfrey, in spite of his willful resistance to her advances. Over time, the Bullock family learns that Godfrey is, in fact, one of them, a son of a prominent New England family who gave it all up after being scorned by a bad relationship. Through Irene's dog persistence, Godfrey learns to love again, and the Bullocks learn humility. To set the stage for My Man Godfrey, we must go back to 1928, the year that Universal Pictures head Carl Lemley Sr. appointed his 20-year-old son, Carl Lemley Jr., as the studio's production manager. Lemley Jr. was eager to put his own authorial imprint on the studio that his father started back in 1912. Jr. was most successful in developing the studio's horror output, producing such films as Dracula, Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and The Bride of Frankenstein. Yet, for as much as Universal had captivated audiences with their roster of monsters, Lemley Jr. wasn't satisfied. He wanted to elevate Universal's status, and he believed that the way to do it was to produce more prestige productions with bigger budgets. Unfortunately, Lemley Jr.'s decision came about during the worst years of the Great Depression. All of the Hollywood studios were impacted. In 1932, Universal reported a loss of $1.2 million, their competitors, RKO and Paramount, reported losses of about 10 million and 21 million, respectively. Even the ever profitable Metro Golden Mayor only made $8 million, $4 million less than the year before. In an attempt to salvage their industry, the Hollywood studios collectively agreed to invoke a six week wage cut in early 1933. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. The combination of chronic overspending and industry-wide losses plunged Universal into a desperate financial crisis. What made matters worse, neither Lemley Jr. nor his father were particularly good at managing money. With mounting production costs and ongoing delays for films such as The Magnificent Obsession, Sutter's Gold, and Showboat, Universal was in deep debt by 1935. Carl Lemley Sr. knew that the studio needed capital quickly, 
so he took out a loan of $750,000 using his own shares as collateral. This move worried Universal's board of directors. By then, Showboat's budget had ballooned to $1.2 million, and Lemley's loan was called in. He couldn't pay. In March 1936, the investment firm Standard Capital Corporation acquired his shares for $5.5 million. With an 80% interest, they were the studio's new owners. To reverse course, Standard Capital's head, J. Cheevers Cowdlin, handpicked Robert H. Cochran as Universal's new president and paid Carl Lemley Sr. a $1.5 million cash settlement to essentially retire as the studio's board chairman. Meanwhile, Carl Lemley Jr. was replaced by former RKO executive Charles Rogers. With Universal on the brink of financial ruin, the studio's new leadership slashed budgets as well as a number of yearly productions. From 39 in the 1934-1935 season, down to 27 for the 1935-36 season. My Man Godfrey was one of the affected properties. Universal had purchased the film rights for My Man Godfrey from Air Catch in 1935, prior to Lemley Jr.'s departure. Cochran and Rogers advised director Gregory LaCava, who, by then, had already been hired by Lemley Jr., that the film's budget could not exceed $586,000. According to historian Thomas Schatz, Universal was lucky that LaCava could be economical if required. When production wrapped, My Man Godfrey cost a total of $656,000, with about a third of that budget spent on above-line costs. The most substantial part of My Man Godfrey's expenditures were salaries. LaCava alone earned $102,500 for his combined directorial, producing, writing efforts. Prior to the executive shakeup, Universal had negotiated a loan-out deal with Metro-Golden-Mayer for William Powell at a cost of $12,500 weekly. In total, he made about $38,000. Charles Rogers had his eye on Constance Bennett for the lead female role. However, he was met with resistance from Powell, who insisted that his studio hire his ex-wife, Carol Lombard, who he thought was the funniest woman in Hollywood and the only actress capable to play Irene. Rogers and LaCava agreed after recognizing her potential in films like 20th Century and the recently released Universal comedy Love Before Breakfast. Powell also demanded that his request be kept a secret from Lombard, believing that she might turn down their offer if she thought it was made out of personal affection. In 1936, Lombard was nearing the end of her seven-year Paramount contract. She and her agent, Myron Selznick, had developed a very shrewd working relationship that would lead to a trailblazing freelance contract and make her the highest paid actor in Hollywood the following year. For my man Godfrey, they negotiated a loan out deal with Paramount for a flat fee of $45,000. Hatch's book has its bright spots, but it's inconsistent in both tone and humor. Historian Elizabeth Kendall calls it a psychologically unsophisticated potboiler. It is, at times, dry and a bit dark, particularly Godfrey's character, whose acerbic wit lacks refinement. When Universal purchased Hatch's option, they aimed to take the film in a lighter direction, but they wanted to keep his zingy, self-deprecating dialogue. As part of his deal, Hatch was kept on as screenwriter, but Universal tasked him to complete a first draft alongside LaCava, they also brought on Maury Riskind, 
the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and one half of the Kaufman Riskin team behind such titles as Of the I Sing, Coconuts, Animal Crackers, and A Night at the Opera. For additional dialogue, LaCava also hired Zoe Atkins and Robert Presnell Sr. The screenwriting team completed a first rough draft by February 19, 1936, under the working title 10-11-5. On March 3rd, Universal producer Harry Zenner sent the script to the PCA for review. PCA head Joseph Breen conceded that the general story was satisfactory, but he had a few objections. Namely, first, what the PCA called the sex element between Godfrey and Irene, particularly in scenes where Godfrey's in her bedroom and in scenes where Irene spends the night in Godfrey's apartment, the latter of which were cut. Second, Carlo, who they said cannot survive as Mrs. Bullock's gigolo. He's described in the film instead as her protege. The third was excessive drinking, which LaCava and the screenwriting team basically overlooked. The fourth was a concluding scene featuring patriarch Mr. Bullock escaping New York for a harem on a South Sea island. Of course, that had to be cut. While Universal's leadership team changed hands, the screenwriters worked on rewrites. They also proposed a title change, switching from 10-11-5 back to Hatch's original punchier, My Man Godfrey. They sent their revisions to the PCA on April 2nd, and the film began production on April 15th. Production wrapped just 35 days later on March 27th, with some retakes in early June. Lombard, Powell, and LaCava threw a party for the rest of the cast and crew to celebrate, continuing the merry atmosphere that LaCava had cultivated on set. My Man Godfrey was certified by the PCA on June 12, 1936, and released a few months later on September 6th. It was an immediate box office smash, and recorded the biggest opening day sales in Midwestern and Northeastern markets. Many critics took note of the film eccentricities, with the New York Times columnist Douglas W. Churchill writing that the film convinced Hollywood of the value of a deliberately disordered mind. My Man Godfrey is also notable for giving birth to the name screwball comedy. When the genre first took hold back in 1934, critics pointed out its zany qualities, but they were known as either sophisticated comedies or simply romantic comedies. The first known example of screwball appearing in a cinematic context is in a variety review describing Carol Lombard's performance in My Man Godfrey. It reads, and I quote, Miss Lombard played screwball dames before, but none so screwy as this one, end quote. By 1936, Lombard had established herself as a natural fit for this popular brand of wacky comedy. And given its cinematic etymology, it's no wonder that she became the unrivaled queen of screwball comedy. Her dizzying performance style can lay claim to be one of the main originators of cinematic screwiness. Lombard was nominated for Best Actress at the 1937 Academy Awards, and the film earned five other nominations, including Powell for Best Actor, LaCava for Best Director, Best Supporting Actor and Actress for Misha Auer and Alice Brady, respectively, and Hatch and Riskin for Best Writing. It was the first film to be nominated for all four acting categories, and the first also to be nominated in the six categories without any wins. Still, the critical and commercial successes and enduring cultural legacy are perhaps greater testaments to the film's genius.
According to Thomas Schatz, Gregory LaCava largely abandoned his signature improvisational technique and instead opted for limited retakes and no-shot coverage, believing that all of the elements would fall into place in the editing room. However, hints of what William Powell described as LaCava's go-as-you-please technique remains, particularly in the abundance of overlapping dialogue, a chief characteristic of both screwball comedy and of LaCava's authorial style. LaCava's unorthodox working methods frustrated scenarists and producers alike. David O. Selznick once said, LaCava would drive me crazy with the rewriting he does on set. 99 directors out of 100 are worthless as producers. However, there are exceptions. I believe that LaCava might be an exception. LaCava gave his actors the space to breathe in their roles. Performances were fresh and spontaneous. And his characters feel alive. In My Man Godfrey, actors step on each other's lines as if their characters are overflowing with excitement. Scruple comedy is loud, and it's no coincidence that this genre adopts such a fast-paced tempo. Technological developments like multi-track recording and mixing have become industry standards just a few years earlier. If you close your eyes and listen to a screwball comedy, particularly one like My Man Godfrey, you become heightened to the genre's electricity. Take, for example, the scene at the scavenger hunt headquarters. My name is Blake. My name is Bullock. The place slightly resembles an insane asylum. Well, all you need to start an asylum is an empty room and the right kind of people. That's right. Take a look at the dizzy old gal with the goat. I've had to look at her for 20 years. That's Mrs. Bullock. I'm terribly sorry. How do you think I feel? All right, all right, Angelica. As we discussed a few episodes ago, some credit Scribble's aggressive tempo to Howard Hawks's 20th century, but in actuality, overlapping dialogue was a stage technique that was perfected in the theater by Alfred Lund and Lynn Fontaine, notably in their 1927 comedy, The Guardsman. Historian Lee Jacobs explains that in the theater, overlapping dialogue depended almost entirely on an actor's technique. Enunciation, projection, and vocal stresses needed to be timed just right to create the intended effect. That's not the case with screwball comedy. If anything, a screwball thrives on chaos, or at least well-orchestrated chaos. 
As the scene from the Scavenger Hunt HQ shows, voices harmonize with atmospheric sounds of feet shuffling, goats bleeding, birds chirping, and even the ambient traffic noise from outside. They blend together in a cacophonous symphony of sound that envelops the viewer, setting the stage for the film's dizzying pace. That comedic disorder that LaCava establishes in this scene extends through to the rest of the film, marrying with sharp one-line zingers, sparring, and physicality, all of which become key screwball traits. Screwball comedy holds up a mirror to the financial turmoil caused by the Great Depression. Films like Mime and Godfrey are, in essence, satirical, borderline subversive spectacles on class consciousness. Wealthy characters like the Bullocks are portrayed as out-of-touch, bumbling buffoons, while the working-class everymen are the ones with common sense and decency. My Man Godfrey begins with arguably the most pointed class critique in the genre. Wealthy people looking for forgotten men as items in a city dump. The film opens on the banks of the Hudson River, where a makeshift camp has been set up for the growing legion of homeless men. Fires in an empty oil drum provide the only light in this otherwise grim landscape. Across the river, the electric lights of Manhattan sparkle. It's the first of many visual contrasts that LaCava employs throughout the film. The dump is where we first meet Godfrey, dressed in dirty, tattered clothes and sporting an unkempt beard. He jokes with his compatriot that, quote, prosperity is just around the corner, boring the hollow sentiment from US President Herbert Hoover. Godfrey's cynicism is justified when we meet Cornelia and Irene, who breeze into the dump in a frenzy to find their prize. This is the place, all right. That looks like one of them sitting outside that looks shack. Looks like a pretty tough joint to me. You stole Irene. I'll talk to the fellow. I don't think it's fair of you and Cornelia. I told you about this place. We got here first. Well, she's not going to get ahead of me. Good evening. Good evening. How'd you like to make five dollars? Uh, I didn't quite catch what you said. I said, how would you like to make five dollars? Five dollars? Five dollars. <laughs> I don't want to seem inquisitive, but what would I have to do for it? Well, all you have to do is go to the Bordeaux Fritz Hotel with me, and I'll show you to a few people, and then I'll send you right back. May I inquire just why you would want to show me to people at the Waldorf Ritz? Oh, if you must know it's a game, you've probably heard about it, a scavenger hunt. If I find a forgotten man first, I win. Is that clear? Yes, quite clear. Shall I wear my tails or come just as I am? You needn't be fresh. Do you want the five dollars or don't you? Madam, I can't tell you how flattered I am by your very generous offer. George! However, I'm afraid I'll have to take it up with my board of directors. Don't you touch me! But no matter what my board of directors advise, I think you should be spanked. George, do something! Are you in the habit of hitting ladies? Maybe. I'm in the habit of hitting gentlemen also, if that'll interest you. Well, aren't you going to do anything? Yes, let's get a policeman. Who are you? I'm Irene. That was my sister Cornelia who pushed in the ice pile. Now, how'd you like to have me push Cornelia's sister into an ice pile? Oh, I don't think I'd like it. Well, then you better get out of here. Oh, you bet. Wait a minute. Sit down. I'm sitting. What's up, Duke? Need some help? No, thanks, boys. Got everything under control. You a member of this hunting party? I was, but I'm not now. Are they all forgotten men, too? Yes, I guess they are. Maybe why? That's the funniest thing. I couldn't help but laugh. I've wanted to do that ever since I was six years old. You wanted to do what? Oh, push Cornelia in something, a pile of ashes or something. You know, that was faithful George Wither. That isn't really his name, but we call him that because he gets in everybody's hair. His father's a broker. That's very enlightening. <laughs> Cornelia, you thought she was going to win and you pushed her in a pile of ashes. <laughs> you think you could follow a 
intelligent conversation for just a moment? I'll try. Well, that's fine. Do you mind telling me just what a scavenger hunt is? Well, a scavenger hunt is exactly like a treasure hunt. Except in a treasure hunt, you try to find something you want. And in a scavenger hunt, you try to find something that nobody wants. Hmm. Like a forgotten man. That's right. And the one that wins gets a prize. Only there really isn't a prize. It's just the honor of winning because all the money goes to charity. That is, if there's any money left over, then there never is. Hmm. Well, that mm. clears the whole matter up beautifully. You know, I've decided I don't want to play any more games with human beings as objects. It's kind of sordid when you think of it. I mean, when you think it over. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I haven't thought it over. Yeah, I don't like to change the subject, but do you tell me why you live in a place like this when there's so many other nice places? You really want to know? Oh, I'm very curious. Mm. It's because my real estate agent felt that the altitude would be very good for my asthma. Well, my uncle has asthma. No. Huh? Well, now there's a coincidence. <laughs> LaCava employs his second visual class contrast here. Opposite Godfrey's scruff, Irene looks like an angel. The moonlight glow shimmers on her sequin dress, and her light blonde hair frames her face like a halo. Elizabeth Kendall likens her to F. Scott Fitzgerald's girl, embodying the good life that money and delicacy can afford. However, in temperament, Irene is more akin to Ellie Andrews in It Happened One Night. Her line of questioning, such as asking why Godfrey chooses to live in such an undignified environment, suggests that she doesn't really understand her own privilege. The depression and all of its ugliness is beyond her comprehension. Godfrey initially bristles at Irene's intrusion, but as their conversation evolves, his briskness melts into pitiful sarcasm. He's amused by her ignorance, which itself is a blistering social criticism. And yet, for as much as Lacava pokes fun at people like Irene, there are glimmers of self-awareness in her character. First, her line, You know, I've decided I don't want to play any more games with human beings as objects. It's kind of sordid when you think of it. I mean, when you think it over. Then later, when Godfrey tells off the crowd at the Waldorf Ritz. Ladies and gentlemen, please, quiet. Quiet. Miss Bullock has a forgotten man. Uh, do you mind stepping up on the platform, please? Just get right up on the platform, Godfrey. Uh, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? <clears throat> Fire away. What is your address? City Dump 32, East River, Sudden Place. Hmm. It's rather fashionable over there, isn't it? In the spots. Is that your permanent address? Well, the permanency is rather questionable. You see, the place is being rapidly filled in. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? If it isn't too personal. Are those whiskers your own? No one else has claimed them. I must ask that question because uh, one group uh, tried to fool the committee the early part of the evening by putting false whiskers on one of their own group. May I, uh, may what? I, uh... Oh, it's a pleasure. <clears throat> one more question. Are you wanted by the police? Oh, that's just the trouble. Nobody wants me. A oh, very good answer. Splendid, Godfrey. You mean nobody wants them? Nobody at all? Nobody. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, on the contrary, I sometimes find it a great advantage. The committee is satisfied. Miss Irene Bullock wins 20 points for a forgotten man and 50 points extra for bringing in the first one. Oh, bravo! Group 10 wins the silver cup. My purpose in coming here tonight was twofold. Firstly, I wanted to aid this young lady. 
Secondly, I was curious to see how a bunch of empty-headed nitwits conducted themselves. My curiosity is satisfied. I assure you, it'll be a pleasure for me to go back to a society of really important people. What's he called us? Nitwits. Nitwits? What are they? I don't know. The man's perfect. I've been wanting to say that all night, but I didn't have the nerve. Oh, Godfrey. Oh, Godfrey. Oh, Godfrey, I'm terribly sorry. That's all right. I'd never brought you here if I thought they were going to humiliate you. I'm terribly grateful. This is the first time I've ever beaten Cornelia at anything, and you helped me do it. But Irene's sentiment is merely empty Depression-era morality. Her fleeting conscience is undercut by her childish immaturity and the reckless attitude of the rest of her cartoonishly one-dimensional family. Cold, biting Cornelia and daffy matriarch Angelica are comically self-absorbed, while Mr. Bullock is emotionally detached. The Bullocks treat Irene like a baby, and to an extent we have to feel sorry for her. Like all children, Irene fakes a tantrum when things don't go her way. The only thing she knows how to do to get attention. You must come between Irene and Godfrey. He's the first thing she's shown any affection for since her Pomeranian died last summer. <laughs> now, now, Irene, you mustn't have a spell. Here, Carla, quick, quick, give me a, a sofa cushion here. Come, darling, lift up your head now, like a good girl. Lift up your head. Like a... There, now, darling, don't cry. Now, now, darling. She's not having a spell. That's old stuff. <laughs> So what is all this nonsense? Will you be quiet? You never did understand women. Why don't you get a doctor? I don't want a doctor. Do you want an ice bag? No, I don't want an ice bag. I want a doctor. You mustn't do that. She makes me ill. Let's get out of here. Carlo, do the gorilla for Irene. It always amuses her. Not in the mood. Well, stop eating your derb and get in the mood. Here. All right. I'll do it. My heart won't be in it. Irene, be a good girl and sit up and look at Carlo. You know, it always amuses you. Come on, quick. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Come on, Carlo, quickly. Look, Irene, look at Carlo. Isn't that lovely? Oh, isn't that clever, Irene? Look. <laughs> Carlo, come down there. She can see you better. Mr. Mother Love. of Screwball's carnivalesque breakdown. Lombard's performance here shows how Screwball histronics fits her acting style like a glove. Screwball is indebted to the loose, full-bodied physicality of the silent era, of which Lombard was a key player. I once described her as a beautiful comic who wasn't afraid to look unglamorous if the role calls for it. 
In Love Before Breakfast, she gets socked in the eye in a bar brawl and is left with a black eye. In Nothing Sacred, she spends half of the film wrapped in an oversized robe, punching and clawing at co-star Frederick March. Here, in My Main Godfrey, that decidedly unglamorous strain rears its head in Irene's tantrum. Lombard's performance is rather tame in comparison to a film like Nothing Sacred, but her inhibition is no less effective at conveying Irene's spoiled demeanor. She exaggerates Irene's hysterics, complete with grimacing faces, crocodile tears, and wild gesticulations, which becomes even more absurd when Carlo does his gorilla impression. Irene desperately wants to be seen as a grown-up, which tragically will never happen in this asylum-like home. Angelica's maternal comforting further infantilizes Irene, especially when she compares her daughter's feelings for Godfrey to those for her dead Pomeranian. Irene is stunted because her family underestimates her. She wants respect, and she gets it, or so she thinks, from Godfrey. Irene latches onto Godfrey from their first encounter because, in her naivete, she mistakes his initial sarcastic pity for kindness. From the outset, he treats her like a child, such as when he agrees paternalistically to accompany her to the Waldorf Fritz to beat Cornelia. But unlike the rest of the Bullocks, his approach is softer, which Irene takes as an invitation for romance. Their relationship is imbalanced, but their scenes together still open up a space for the film's rare moments of sentiment and vulnerability. One notable scene is when Irene helps Godfrey wash dishes after dinner. You look so cute in your apron. <laughs> I'm not trying to look cute. Molly has a cold and I'm doubling for her. <laughs> What's funny about that? She hasn't got a cold. No? No, she's got the same thing I've got, only you won't let me talk about things like that, so I won't because you lose your temper. <laughs> well, not seriously. Will you let me do something if I ask you? Well, what do you want to do? Wipe. Oh, all right. You can tell me all about your trip. Oh, well, you won't get mad? Why should I? Because every place I went, everybody was Godfrey. Every... I don't want to seem dull, but uh, I do seem to have a little trouble following you at times. Well, for instance, I... when I go into a restaurant in Paris or any place, I'd close my eyes and I'd say the waiter's Godfrey. And I'd say I'm home and he's serving me dinner. Made everything taste better. Why? Haven't you any sense? I'm afraid I haven't. And when I get in the cab, the driver is Godfrey. And I'd say this is his chariot and he's taking me up through the clouds to his castle on the mountains. <laughs> Suppose you come down out of the mountains tell me about your trip. Well, we went to Venice, and one night I went for a ride in one of those robots that the man pushes with a stick. Not a matador, that was in Spain, but something like a matador. Do you by any chance mean a gondolier? That was the name of the boat, and the man that pushed it sang. It was a beautiful song. I didn't understand it, but it was beautiful. I see. So you closed your eyes, and the man was Godfrey. It was wonderful. I didn't even mind the smells. <laughs> well, it's very convenient to take a trip abroad without leaving the kitchen. Oh, you have a wonderful sense of humor. I wish I had a sense of humor, but I never can think of the right thing to say till everybody's gone home. <laughs> Do you mind if I talk for a little bit while you uh, catch your breath? I'd love it. Well, while you've been away, I've been doing some things also. I've been trying to do things that I thought would make you proud of me. Oh, I was proud of you before I went away. Yes, but I mean prouder still. You see, you helped me to find myself, and I'm very grateful. You'd make a wonderful husband. <laughs> I'm afraid not. You see... I know how you feel about things. How? Well, you're grateful to me because I helped you to beat Cornelia. And I'm grateful to you because you helped me to beat life. But that doesn't mean that we have to fall in love. 
Well, if you don't want to, but I make a wonderful wife. <laughs> well, not for me, I'm afraid. See, I like you very much. I had a very bitter experience. But I won't bore you with that. Well, maybe she wasn't in love with you. Well, maybe not. However, that's beside the point. You and I are friends. I feel a certain responsibility to you. That's why I wanted to tell you first. Tell me what? Well, I thought it was about time that I was moving on. God. Now, please. I won't cry, I promise. That's fine. After all, I'm your protege. You want me to improve myself, don't you? Yes. You don't want me to go on being just a butler all my life, do you? I want you to be anything you want to be. Well, that's very sweet. When are you leaving? Oh, pretty soon. But I'll call you up every now and then, and uh, we'll have long chats. I'll tell you how I'm getting on. Oh, we'll have lots of fun. Are you going back to her? To whom? That Indian woman. Indian? Oh. <laughs> she was just a fabrication. Oh. Then you weren't married to her. No, she was just a product of Tommy Gray's imagination. Then there wasn't any. No. Well, then there couldn't have been five children. Well, naturally. <laughs> that makes a difference. <laughs> that makes a difference. <laughs> William Powell once said that when he worked opposite Myrna Loy, it never felt like he was acting. And I think the same can be said of his films with Carol Lombard. Their chemistry and mutual affection just ooze off the screen. Of course, it helps that the couple was actually married in real life years before, from 1931 to 1933. They first met on the set of Man of the World, and Powell, who was 16 years Lombard's senior, was immediately disarmed by her unaffected attitude. She was not impressed by his fame or his social status, and brushed off his proposals of marriage. Eight months later, and what Powell described as a lot of coaxing, Lombard finally accepted. Their romance was short, but what remained was a lasting friendship and deep trust. Lombard famously said that Bill Powell was the only intelligent actor I've ever met. Lombard and Powell were so committed to each other professionally that two years following My Main Godfrey, they even attempted to start their own production company with director Ernst Lubitsch and agent Myron Selznick. As Irene and Godfrey wash dishes, it's like we're watching two dancers performing their routine for the millionth time. Everything from their timing to their beat just clicks. Powell performs Godfrey's bemusement with tenderness. Godfrey hides his growing romantic feelings because he doesn't want to be hurt the same way that he was in the past. His pride is at stake after all. But his cautious candor reveals just how deeply he cares for Irene, as a friend, potential love interest, and someone who sees him for who he truly is. Irene too is disarmed, perhaps for the first time since the city dump. She longs to impress Godfrey and win him over as a romantic partner, which she does rather forcefully in the final scene. But she's also not on defense with him like she is with the rest of her family. This is where Irene begins to discover Godfrey's true feelings. Once she realizes that Godfrey wasn't married with six kids, she sees that as a pathway for her to make her move. First, by pretending to faint, 
and later by showing up unannounced at the dump to get married on the spot. Godfrey's hooked, and Irene knows it. She just has to force him to see sense. For all of its posturing, Maimon Godfrey undercuts the class critique that it establishes so well from the outset. Stanley Cavell once wrote that screwball comedies were fairy tales for the Depression, and that's no better description than for My Man Godfrey. The pointed class consciousness that the film introduces in its opening scene is spoiled by what Christopher Beach calls a utopian celebration of private enterprise. Godfrey's not actually a forgotten man, but a Boston blue blood from one of America's oldest families. We first learn of his background when his old Harvard classmate, Tommy Gray, makes an appearance at a luncheon given by Angelica. Later, the two men meet for drinks. I've been sitting here like a snoopy old maid with her ears flapping in the breeze, waiting to hear the dirt. Whatever you like to hear. Well, when I wander into a Fifth Avenue asylum and see one of the park parks of Boston serving hors d'oeuvres, I think I'm entitled to a pardonable curiosity. Why well, tell you something that you won't understand? Tommy, you've fallen off so many polo ponies that your brains are scrambled. But I still want to know why you're battling when your family's telling everybody that you're in South America doing something about rubber or sheep or something. Family has to say something to save its face. You know, the parks disgrace very easily. I'd like to see their faces when they find out that you're a butler. They're not going to find it out. All right, they're not going to find it out. But uh, come to the point. Well, there isn't much of a point. You remember that little incident up in Boston? You still have that woman on your mind? No, not anymore. But I was pretty bitter at the time. So I gave her everything I had and just disappeared. You know, the Parks were never educated to face life. We've been puppets for ten generations. And? Tommy, it's surprising how fast you can go downhill when you begin to feel sorry for yourself. And boy, did I feel sorry for myself. I wandered down to the East River one night thinking I'd just slide in and get it over with. But I met some fellows living there on a city dump. Here were people who were fighting it out and not complaining. I never got as far as the river. Godfrey invests his wages to build a ritzy nightclub on the site of the city dump, appropriately called The Dump, and employs the now-displaced homeless men as doormen and waitstaff. And he rescues the Bullocks from financial ruin after it's discovered that Patriarch Alexander has used stockholder money to recoup his business losses. Godfrey's business savvy saves the Bullock fortune, secures their reputation, and their social standing in the upper-class circle that they occupy. Like other films in the screwball genre, My Man Godfrey reinforces a worldview without substantial class mobility, and ironically relies on private enterprise, and not the social engineering of Roosevelt's New Deal, to achieve economic stability. The amusing contrast between wealth and poverty highlights the uneasy ideological contradictions caused by a society in disorder. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Or me, I'm at The Screwball Girl. 
Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>